0: Good morning again. We are glad you're here today. It's good to see each of you here. We are so thankful for this opportunity to worship God. And to those of you who are visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We are honored by your presence. Thank you for coming our way today. We would encourage you to come back if you are looking for a church home. As always, we invite you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and be part of our family. I know our elders would be more than happy to answer any questions that you might have. And we would love for you to be a part of the work here in Olive Branch. I do want to say thank you to Jared for preaching in my absence last week. Appreciate him and all the great stuff that he does on a weekly basis. Thank you to Jared and his family and their great faith and the example that they set. We are thankful for the whole family. So we appreciate him very much. Today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 10 through 12. Our lesson today is on the theme, the reality of persecution. I don't have to tell you how much things have changed in our country. You know that. We have all seen a change in the landscape of where we live. America is not as friendly to the Christian faith as it once was. As a matter of fact, in many respects people have become openly hostile to Christianity. The whole idea of God, the Bible, and living upon the foundation of faith, those very ideals have come under attack and scrutiny. In Matthew chapter 5, this is what typically we call the Sermon on the Mount, And Jesus sets forth some principles that are to be embedded in the lives of believers. And in this context, Jesus also talks about some things that, as His disciples, we ought to ponder. So, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus lays the foundation for the possibility, if not the probability, of suffering for our faith. So as we think about the relevance of Scripture, and the fact that God's Word is timeless, what Jesus said nearly 2,000 years ago is just as relevant as it was the day in which He spoke it. I want to begin by talking about, first, the challenge of persecution. Now Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to begin by calling attention to the expectation of persecution. Listen again to Jesus the passage that was read a moment ago. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Let me just pause there for a minute. One of the things that really stands out in my mind about the teaching of Jesus He was extremely transparent in everything that He said. The Lord Jesus never tried to conceal what being a disciple was all about. As a matter of fact, He talked about the good, the blessings. He also talked about the hardships, the difficulties. You remember over in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent the twelve out, He told them that they could expect, number one, to be scourged. Number two, to be hated. And number three, to be persecuted. If you ever bought a product or maybe a service? For whatever reason, the product or the service did not meet your expectations. So you go back to the company and you begin voicing your complaint. Maybe you want a refund on your money. Maybe you would like for them to do something that, you, that in your heart of hearts you thought should have been done. And they say, well, if you'll pull the contract out and read that small, fine print, you'll see the disclaimers. Jesus didn't do that when it came to being His disciple. I mean, you think about the Lord Jesus as He begins His public ministry. He is laying the foundation and saying to His disciples and to those who would be His disciples, listen, you need to understand something. If you're going to be one of my followers, then you need to get ready to suffer. It is a part of being one of my followers. It goes with the territory. So with that being said, listen to Jesus in John chapter 15. In verse 19, Jesus said, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, he said, the world hates you. What Jesus was saying is, when you decided to become one of my followers, one of my disciples, automatically that put you at variance with those in the world. Paul knew something about facing tough times in life. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 12, he would say, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now think about that. Timothy was his son in the faith. And Paul, in writing to Timothy and really writing to people of every generation, he's saying, when you choose to become a disciple of Jesus and live a godly life, you can just mark it down, persecution is going to come your way. It is a part of the territory. The bottom line, get ready to suffer. It's coming. So, first, there is this expectation. But then, secondly, there are examples. I mean, think about all the examples we have in Scripture of people who suffered for their faith. Now listen to Jesus. He said, Blessed are they when they, or blessed are you rather, when they revile and persecute you and say, all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And then note this, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Could I ask you a question today? What prophet do you know of in the Old Testament era, what prophet do you know of that would have been classified as popular among the populace? I can't think of any prophet that found favor in the eyes of God and really in many ways the most successful prophet in the eyes of the people that I can think of was Jonah. And Jonah wasn't even sent to the people of God, but rather he was sent to preach to Nineveh, Gentile people. In chapter 3, his preaching and teaching found favor in the eyes of the people And you remember what Jonah records there? They repented in sackcloth and ashes, all the way, starting with the king and filtering down. But look at Jeremiah. What about Elijah? Elijah, remember that great showdown he had on Mount Carmel? 450 prophets of Baal put to death. In chapter 19, Jezebel the evil wife of King Ahab sent word to him. And basically she told him, let me tell you what, I will have your head. And the Bible says that Elijah fled, was despondent, so much so that he wanted to die. And yet God had to remind Elijah in the long ago, look, I still have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3? Nebuchadnezzar, the king over the Babylonian Empire. You remember, he built a golden image, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. The text says that at the sound of certain musical instruments, every single person was to bow down and pay homage to that golden image. Well, there were three young men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't bow and they wouldn't bend. And do you remember, Nebuchadnezzar gave them the opportunity to recant, to back up, to bow, and they would be saved. And they knew that if they did not bow and recant, they would be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You know what they said? Bring it on. And they were thrown into that burning, fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar got to see four people in that furnace, one like unto the Son of Man, They were spared. What about Daniel himself? You know, Daniel is an interesting study. Daniel rose to prominence in the court of the Babylonians, and then when Babylon gave way to the Medes and the Persians, Daniel was prominent in that court. And you remember in Daniel, the Bible tells us that an edict had gone forth, that no one was to petition any god or man with the exception of the king, for a period of 30 days. Otherwise, their fate would be they would be cast into a den of lions. Do you think that deterred Daniel from getting down on his knees and praying to God as he had done in days gone by? Daniel, in light of the edict that was unalterable, went back home, got down on his knees, and prayed to God. And guess what happened? Cast into that den of lions. In the New Testament, you think about the church being born in the period of the Roman Empire. The church was born and began to grow in a state of civil unrest in many respects. There was Jewish persecution, and then there was persecution from the Romans. In the book of Acts, we have a chronicle of the persecution leveled against members of the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 4, we have a record of Peter and John being called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin council. They had healed a man at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 4, the Bible says they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the Sadducees and the priest and the captain laid hold on them put them in custody, and they have to give an account of what just happened. And they wanted to know by what name, by what power, have you done this notable deed? They acknowledged that what they had done was a result of the power of Jesus. You remember in verse 12, they said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, think about that for a minute. They are standing before the Sanhedrin council this governing body of the Jewish people and the Jewish council, they're trying to protect their turf. And they're going to let it be known, look, you want to be saved, all roads run through one man. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse 13, the text says, they recognized Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. But Luke said, they marveled. Why? Because these men have been with Jesus. And let me tell you what, three, three and a half years with Jesus will make a difference in your life, won't it? Were they changed men? The text says that they commanded these men not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. I just hear them now. They said, we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. They went back, rehearsed these events with their fellow disciples. They prayed to God that they might preach the word with all boldness, and that's exactly what they did. In chapter 5, the apostles are apprehended and they're put in prison. They are released. And then the council threatens them. Matter of fact, not only did they threaten them, they beat them. And then they commanded them not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus, and here's what Luke said. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. What about Acts chapter seven, Stephen? Stephen gave a narration of the Hebrew history, and he was put to death, and there was a fellow by the name of Saul that consented to his death. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Saul did many things as he would say, from his own lips. He said, I did many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 8, the Bible says, Saul made havoc of the church. Now you talk about terrorism. He was a terrorist in the true sense of the word, wasn't he? So here's a guy who is militant. He is doing everything within his power to destroy the body of Christ. And Then what about in Acts chapter 12? The Bible says that James, the brother of John, was put to death with the sword by Herod. Turn over to Acts chapter 14. And there you read of Paul. Paul and Barnabas in the city of Lystra. And as a result of their preaching and teaching, there were a lot of folks that didn't like what they heard. And Luke says that they stoned the apostle Paul. Paul, in recounting his persecutions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, said three times I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. hundred and ninety-five stripes had been laid upon his back. You remember in Galatians chapter 6, Paul said, I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the apostle Paul had been scarred. His body had been scarred and marred for the cause of Christ. Probably picked him out of a lineup by the very visible scars on his body. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. You remember they were again persecuted. They're beaten. They're cast in prison. Their feet are fastened in stocks. And how they react to that? Do you remember? The text says at midnight they prayed and sang praises to God. In 2nd Timothy chapter 3, Paul talked about. persecutions and afflictions that he had encountered in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He said, what persecutions I endured. Paul faced any number of hardships in life. And the point is, there are numerous examples. John for example, when John wrote the Revelation in chapter one, he had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. He was suffering tribulation. Why? Because of his faith in Christ. So do we have the right to expect to be persecuted for the cause of Christ? I think Jesus is saying you need to understand first and foremost the challenge of persecution. But then secondly, what about the causes? What are the causes of persecution? Jesus tells us. Listen to Him again, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Here it is right here. For my sake. Number one. First reason. Because of our Lord. Jesus said, you want to be one of my disciples. You want to sign on the so-called dotted line and say that you're going to be a part of my, my kingdom. You need to understand when you choose me, you are going to choose a life of heart. You remember Jesus in Matthew 16 when he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If we're going to be a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it entails Self denial. We live in the age of self centeredness, don't we? And yet, what Jesus is saying is, you want to serve me, it is a selfless life. By the way, Jesus would say in John 15 20, the servant is not above his master. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So when you sign on the dotted line and say you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you've got to understand, you are in the minority. You are among the few in number. The relationship that we sustain to Jesus will automatically put us in hot water with the world, won't it? Look at Paul. And Peter and John, and look at the things that they encountered for the cause of Christ. Do you think they, do you think that they were willing to die for their faith? I have no doubt. They did die for their faith, didn't they? So, first and foremost, to understand that because of our relationship to the Lord. On Pentecost Day when the Apostle Peter preached the gospel for the first time in its fullness. You remember he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. When we say we want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying He is our Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our allegiance is to Him. So to understand that priority number one is Jesus in life, isn't it? Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Paul was in chains for his relationship to Christ. He would say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But he said the Word of God is not bound. Here is Paul chained to a Roman guard. Every four to six hours they're rotating these guards in and out. All right, Paul, what are you talking about? He's talking about Jesus, isn't he? Why? Because Jesus was his life. In verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul makes this statement, and he preceded that by saying, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So he said, for me to live is Christ. If you and I had the opportunity to sit down and interview Paul and we said, Paul, what's your life all about? In one word, here's what he'd say, Christ, that's it. Here's a guy that's willing to die for his faith in the Lord. Here's a guy whose allegiance to Jesus in many respects was unparalleled. So our relationship to the Lord, and then here's a second reason, our lifestyle. As a child of God, number one, are we not supposed to be distinctive? Are we supposed to blend in with the world? You know, Paul said, we're not to be conformed to the world, but rather we're to be transformed. The challenge of the hour is either transformation or confirmation. Are you transformed? Are you living a transformed life? Or have you conformed and recanted, and gone back to the world. Can people tell you're a child of God? Peter said you're an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Paul was a walking, talking billboard for Jesus. I can tell you wherever Paul went, they knew something about Jesus. When you choose to live a distinctive Life in Christ Jesus, it makes a difference. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He said, you are to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Light and darkness cannot coexist, can they? Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 7, Jesus said the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Let me tell you why it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You take a stand in this world. Think about Peter and John. Here they are before the Sanhedrin council and they throw the gauntlet down. They say, listen here, you need to understand neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Is that what the world wants to hear today? Anything but... The world says, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. What might be true for you is not true for me and vice versa. Are you distinctive? Are you different? Is there something about you that says you are salt and light? If people can't tell us from the world, let me tell you what, we got a problem, don't we? What's the old saying, Houston, we have a problem? We have a problem. You stand up in this world. You want to put it to the test, you take a stand. Let me tell you what, John DeBerry, a friend of mine, a friend of Don Blackwell's, going to be on live this week with B.J. Clark. John DeBerry is under fire in his district. He is a Tennessee state legislator. He was removed from his political platform. Do you know why? Because of his belief that life begins in the womb. You mean to tell me that we have become so calloused in this country that we have no feelings for the unborn? That's exactly right. Here's a guy that, matter of fact, he said, when I got into office in 1995, he said, I have not changed. My constituency, they know I haven't changed. They know where I stand but his own political party put him out because he's trying to live a lifestyle that doesn't blend in with the world. Take a stand. Throw the gauntlet down. When you say Jesus is the way, He is the only way, let me tell you what, you're going to come under fire. That's not how our nation, that's not how our world operates today. Yet Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I had a friend of mine, he used to say, it doesn't matter if it hair lips every cow in Texas, it's true. Truth is truth, isn't it? Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, and you want to be one of my disciples, number one, you're going to find yourself in hot water because of your relationship to me. One of the real reasons is because of our relationship to the Lord. Another is because of our lifestyle. Didn't Paul say in Titus chapter 2 that God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to every man? Instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That is different. That is distinctive. Now I remember some folks back In the days of Samuel, they were disenchanted with God being their king during the days of the judges. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds familiar to me, doesn't it, you? It's this idea, you know, you do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do. God was to have been their king. And they went to Samuel and said, we want a king to be like all the nations around us. If we blend in with the world, we're not going to be distinctive. We're not going to be different. We have been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. And because of that relationship, what we say, what we what we do and where we stand sets us apart. You remember Paul in Ephesians 5? Paul said, You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then listen to this. Paul would write in Ephesians 5:11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You mean you're telling me that as a Christian? My lifestyle lifestyle suggests, my lifestyle says, and my Lord says, I can't condone drinking and gambling and smoking and taking other forms of recreational drugs. I don't believe in living a permissive life. You mean to tell me that I'm not for abortion, that I'm not for same-sex marriage? That's exactly right. Why? Because we're different. We're distinctive. There's a third thing I want you to see. Jesus said there is a crown for the righteous. Look again at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Let me just stop here. Number one, Jesus said, rejoice. That's our attitude. Does that seem strange to you? That Jesus would say, in light of everything you're going to suffer for my cause, here's what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice. Rejoice when Peter talked about that fiery trial that was to come upon the children of God in the first century, you remember he said that when the Lord Jesus is revealed, when He comes in His glory, verse 13, 1 Peter 4, he said, you will be glad with exceeding joy. Why is that? Because you're numbered among the faithful. Go back again and read Acts 5. When the apostles were beaten, they praised God because they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Peter said, Peter said the long ago, on their part, He's blasphemed. On your part, He's glorified. Peter would say, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this respect. So I think about our attitude. But then, what about, what about our assurance? Jesus said, if you're faithful to me, there is a reward waiting on you. Listen again. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. He didn't, he didn't say... Your reward's great. He said, he didn't just say you have a reward. He said, you have a great reward. When Jesus surveyed the seven churches of Asia Minor, he talked about the persecutions and the troubles and trials that some of those folks were facing in the first century. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus said, I want you to be faithful. Unto death, that is, in the face of death, I want you to be faithful to me, and here's what I'll do. I will give you a crown of life to Stephanos. The victor's crown. I want to ask you a question. Let's just say that we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, and let's just say that we lose our life because of our relationship to the Lord. Will it be worth it? Will it have been worth it? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Don't fear him who's able to destroy the body, but after that, can't destroy the soul. He said, but let me tell you who you need to fear. Fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Revelation chapter 6, you read about the souls who were being martyred for the cause of Christ. And John talked about those souls under the altar. When John wrote the Revelation, they were faced with a siege of persecution. If you want to sum up the Revelation, it's this. God's people win. We will come out on the winning side. It might not look like it. Are we in the minority? Yes. Do we fit in in many respects in the world? No. But we win. Paul said, our labor is not vain in the Lord. Here's the key, be faithful. It's what it's all about, be faithful. Jesus said, you might lose your life in my service. Whoever loses his life, he said, will save it. You may be here today, and maybe you have felt the sting of insult maybe like Peter and John and other apostles, those who work with you, maybe some of your peers, your classmates, maybe they have tried to intimidate you. Maybe they've tried to push you around. Listen, you're in good company. My encouragement to us, stay true to God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know it's the best life. It's the blessed life. So if you're here today and you're not a child of God, what would you need to do? What I'm going to tell you, the Bible says, is not what you typically hear in the world. No, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Based upon your faith in the Lord, you've got to be willing to repent. Saul of Tarsus one who tormented the church day and night. Had a change of heart, didn't he? Saul of Tarsus repented of his sins, confessed the name of Jesus, and then was baptized into Christ so that his sins might be washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. If you will do that, God will forgive you and put you in the church. And you need to be in the church because that's where the saved are, Ephesians 5.23. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be, maybe you're not faithful, maybe, you have, maybe you've fallen under the weight of persecution. You haven't stood like you should have. The beauty, of, the beauty of Scripture is God will forgive, won't He? John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our encouragement to you would be come home as we stand and sing.